Last summer, my family and I had the opportunity to go to Westcliff, Colorado, which is considered a dark sky city. Uh, that means there's ordinances uh, in the city in which you're either not allowed to turn on lights uh, or you have to have uh, muffled lights uh, so that the residents and anyone who comes to the city can look up into the night sky and see the stars. It is absolutely beautiful. It sits right at the base of the San Cristobal Mountains in the Rockies. And Lauren and I marveled at it last year, and many people come to see the Milky Way and Orion's sparkling belt. But those who know God marvel more than those who don't. Because as beautiful as the 6,000 stars in the sky that we can see from Earth are, when you know that there's one who made the stars, and when you know that there's one who sustains them, your marveling increases. There is one who is greater than the wonder itself. Well, if you remember last week, there is a wonder that has just happened. A lame man has just been healed after 40 years of being crippled. He sat at the beautiful gate in the temple begging for alms, but something much greater came, not silver and gold, but healing in Jesus' name. This man could finally walk, and he was leaping, and he was praising God. But I want us to remember, before we get into the text, that this man ultimately died. His legs gave out. His physical healing was only temporary. So there has to be a, a deeper meaning to the text, a, a greater purpose to what's going on that God would want us to see. So what is the ultimate point of this passage? What is behind the wonder and the sign itself? Well, today we're going to get that answer as we look at the rest of chapter 3 in the book of Acts. But to frame it, verse 11 helps us. Look with me there. While he clung to Peter and John, the paralytic, now who is healed, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to the portico called Solomon's. So the healed man is now walking and leaping and praising God, as we saw last week. And now he is clinging to the disciples around the temple grounds. And he's not needing help walking. That's not why he's clinging. He is clinging because he knows that these men have just healed him and he's now associated with them. You can imagine the impression that this, ha this had on the crowd itself uh, on the temple mount that day. Uh, in a sense, this man was physically restored Emotionally restored, as Pastor Kurt helped us see last week, he's socially restored, and now he has been spiritually restored. And so the chaos on the Temple Mount that day is profound. 2,000 people at least are rushing to the outskirts of the temple to see what is going on. If you've ever been to the temple in Jerusalem, the temple sat 
at the center of a major complex, but that's not where they are in the center of the temple where the atonement took place. They're on the outskirts of it. And so everybody runs to the outside of the portico where Solomon's name is given. And the miracle kind of goes by the wayside as the real meaning of the text now moves forward. And what we're going to see is this miracle gathers the multitudes so that the message of the gospel can go forward. There's one behind the wonder that is going to be greater than the wonder itself. And so the driving question for us in our time together is simply this. Why is Peter's message more glorious than the miracle it follows? And I'm just going to give you the answer up front. Because the message shifts all the focus onto Jesus. And we're going to unpack that as we work through this text. And that's what the book of Acts is all about. It actually has a slew of sermons in it with signs and wonders that gather the people and then the word of God goes forward. This is how God works in the book of Acts to help us to see that everything in life is provided to us in Jesus, in the name of Jesus. And so why is Peter's message more glorious than the first, than the miracle that it follows? Well, the first point I want us to see is found in verses 12 through 16. Because his message conveys that healing is found in Jesus' name. Look with me there as the flash flood of people rush to Peter and John. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? Peter is simply saying, we have nothing to do with this. There is no power in our, in our minds. There's no power in our hands. There is no religious devi uh, uh, devotion, no level of piety that one can reach to accomplish such an act. So please put it out of your mind that we ourselves have anything to do with this. And then look what he does. He points to Jesus, the very one who is responsible for the man standing up and walking and leaping and now praising God. Look with me there in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate and when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Peter addresses them with a common title that they would have known. This is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and of the fathers. And he says, and this God, who you know, has glorified his servant, Jesus. Now, that word servant there is not the typical servant word that we know as doulos, or like a slave or a servant of someone. But it's actually the word for child or a son. Intimate one, a begotten one. Servant Jesus is an intimate relational term. And now he, he kind of shows what God has done with this one. He is the one that glorified this son. He raised this son from the dead. Look how Peter gives him titles. This Jesus, he is the holy one. He is the set apart one. 
He is the righteous one. That means he is the one who fulfills the law. He gives him the title as the author of life. If you remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8, Jesus is the one through whom all things exist. Jesus is the one who has made the mountains with his hands. He's crafted the smallest particle of dust on the earth. He has shaped the greatest sequoia trees in the national forest. And he has also designed every single blade of grass. He knows all of the birds that fly in the air and he is responsible for creating every single beast of the field. And yes, all of humanity, every single individual who is, knit, who is made in the image of God, he is the author of life. And God raised him and God glorified him, which means he exalted him. And Peter says that he and John were eyewitnesses to this in verse 15. He's going to later say in verse 21 that this Jesus is the one who's going to restore all things. He's the great prophet that Moses promised in verses 22 and 23. He is the king that Samuel promised in verse 24. And he is the offspring of Abraham that was promised for the nations in verse 25. This is who Jesus is. And it's this Jesus, in fact, it's the name of Jesus, as we see in verse 16, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Brothers and sisters, it's not Peter and John. It's the name of Jesus that has made this man well. You think the man walking is an earth-shattering thought? How about the all-encompassing Christ? The full Christ. That is what a name represents. All that goes into a name is everything, the totality about that person. The ministry of Christ, the life of Christ, the perfection of Christ, the personality of Christ, the personhood of Christ, the character of Christ, all the attributes of Christ fill the name of Christ, which is responsible for giving this man healing. The communicable attributes of Christ, his love, his mercy, his patience, his justice, the all-encompassing pieces of him, his wisdom, the incommunicable attributes of Christ, his self-existence, his self-sustaining, his self-sufficiency, the fact that he is uncreated, he is creator, he is unchanging, and beloved, he is sovereign over every single particle in all of creation. Think of the names of God that encompass the name of Jesus Christ. He is transcendent Elohim. He is El Elyon, the most high God. He is Jireh, provider. He is Rapha, healer. He is Yahweh. I am that I am. And it's in the name of the Lord Jesus that the whole character of God is on display. Remember what it says in Colossians chapter 2. The fullness of deity dwells bodily in Jesus. Jesus himself in prayer to the Father says in John 17, I have manifested your name. That means I have shown your name to these people. 
Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, he is the imprint, the very nature of God. And those who know his name, as it says in Psalm chapter 9, trust in him. This is the name of Jesus. And knowing the character and the attributes of a person means that you know what is bound up in that person's name. It's more than a title. It's the totality, as I've said, of the person. So this, Jesus, is responsible for the work that has taken place here. I think a natural question that rises up from the text is whose faith are we talking about? Because he says there, by faith in his name, and there's some debate over this. It's not very clear. I happen to think that it's probably the faith of Peter and John. They've walked in this temple for many years. And this man has been there every time or most, most likely many times. But it's on this specific day that their gaze is fixed on him. And he says, we cannot offer you silver and gold, but what we do have, we offer in the name of Jesus Christ. And we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that it's Jesus who gives the faith, who gives the gift of faith, who gives the gift of healing that these apostles would have had. And so we know that, that ultimately it's Jesus who's working through them. Because look what it says at the end of 16, that faith that is through Jesus. That means that Jesus gave the faith for the miracle to occur. So if it's Peter and John or if it's the man who stands and rises and he is believing that he, he can, ultimately the faith that is given is given through Jesus. What a gift giver Christ is. And this fits with scripture because we'll see in Acts chapter 5 verse 31 that faith and repentance are given through Jesus. We see in Ephesians 2 that grace and faith are given by God so that no man would boast. So Peter's not trying really hard here to heal a man. And the guy's not mustering up a lot of belief so that he can be healed. Jesus is doing something miraculous here, and the disciples want these men to see it. Beloved, sometimes we're tempted to think that you, yourselves, or I, myself, am the source of faith, and that we can believe something in our own hearts, and that we're, we're trusting that we have believed, and that we have been faithful, or that we are devout because we go to church or the temple every day as these people, but beloved, faith comes by the hand of Jesus. And that is what he is teaching right here. So the point is Jesus. And he is the one who physically heals, but there's more going on here. We've seen what God has done by, by glorifying the son and by raising him from the dead. But let's go back and see in verse 13 what it is that man has done. Because Peter gives bad news here in verse 13. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus... And then here's the bad news, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he decided to release him. But you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. Think about that scene for just a moment. This Jesus who Peter is saying, the father glorified, the father raised from the dead. 
he's now connecting that same person to the one that they delivered to Pilate. After Pilate decided to release him, he's the very one that they denied, the holy one, and requested a murderer instead. And he's saying, you killed the author of life. You killed murderers, requested a murderer. He's calling them out here in Solomon's portico. And we know this is written by the hand of Luke. And this is his second letter to Theophilus. In the first letter to Theophilus, which is the gospel of Luke, we see so many parallels between Luke and Acts. This is one of them. He, he first tells this story in Luke chapter 23. Listen to these words. It, it should be up on your screen. But they all cried out together, away with this man and release to us Barabbas. This is the very people that Peter is now preaching to. A man who has been thrown into prison for insurrection started in the city and for murder. And Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. Verse 23, but they were urgent demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released, them, uh, released the man who has been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And now Jesus, excuse me, now Peter is saying, this is the one. Do you remember that 50 days ago of more than 50 days ago, this is the one that the Father has glorified. This is the one that the Father raised from the dead. This is the one that has the title author of life and you killed him. So God's glorified his son when he put him on the cross and it's kind of a summary of what Peter is, is getting at. You denied him and you preferred Barabbas. So you killed him, but God raised this Jesus from the dead and this man is healed because he believed in the name of Jesus. So think about the scene. They're marveling that the man is healed. They're astonished. And he's saying, you think that's amazing? You killed the one who healed him. He, he confronts their sin directly. That's part of what we are to do as Christians is to confront each other with our sin, to, to, to bring forward where there is sin, where something doesn't align with the perfect will of God as revealed in Scripture. And the one who used to deny Jesus to, to a young girl and to, to others has now brought forward boldly through the power of the Holy Spirit an arrow that is meant right for the center of their heart to help them to see that they are sinners and grave sinners because they've killed the author of life. In fact, Luke has recorded other parallel stories too. It's not just here that we start seeing that Jesus' ministry goes beyond um, uh, caring for people's hearts. He, he's been healing people, but the, the real goal of Jesus' ministry has always been to aim at the heart. 
if you remember back in Luke chapter 5, how there is a lame man, similar to the lame man that has been healed in the passage this, this week and last week. There's a lame man, and he and his friends want to see Jesus. And they go to him, but they cannot get to him because the crowd is too big. And so they have uh, a plan to go up to the roof of the house and to, to, to kind of um, uh, send down the brother towards the feet of Jesus after they remove the tiles from the roof. And it's here that Jesus sees this paralytic man that is being healed, or excuse me, that wants to be healed, and this is what he says to him. He says, man, your sins are forgiven. So before he actually deals with the problem of paralysis, he heals his heart. Jesus is actually more concerned with the paralysis of the heart before he's interested in the paralysis of his legs. And he forgives him. And if you remember in the verses up there on your screens, verse 21, and the scribes and the Pharisees began to question saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But Jesus perceived their thoughts and he answered them, why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Beloved, we see here that Peter is talking about this miracle that has taken place in the healing of this man, but he's beginning to shift. He's, he's calling them out on their sin because he's shifting so that they see that there's a greater miracle that actually needs to take place here. And that's the miracle that transpires in the heart of men and women because of sin. And so in Acts chapter three, he helps them to see, you think this is great? I've got even greater news for you. I've even got greater news for you. And that's our second point found in verses 17 through 21. Why is this gospel message more glorious than the miracle? Because his message offers an even greater healing in Jesus' name. Just like he gave to the paralyzed man, man, your sins are forgiven. So Peter took this opportunity in particular to, to, to highlight the miracle, but then to get to a greater wonder, and that is the lameness of their own hearts, for which in this moment they cannot currently see. Look with me there in verse 17. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he is thus fulfilled. They acted like ignorant fools, it says in the text, and so did their rulers. But Peter reminds them, hey, it was actually prophesied that the Christ must suffer. We remember this in Psalms 22. We remember this in Isaiah 53 and other places. And why must the Christ suffer? Well, he's first and foremost rejected. He's rejected by men. But he must suffer for the sins of the men who have rejected him. And the men who are listening to Peter preach this sermon, they in their current state are alienated from God. They are, they are outside of fellowship with God. And so Peter kind of unfolds what's going on. 
He's helping them to see that, hold on on the miracle. I have something else that I want to tell you. And he gives them a command, an imperative in verse 9. Because you killed the author of life, repent, therefore, and turn back. Run from your sin. Run towards Christ. Change your mind. Reorient your thinking. Turn back to God. Be reconciled to him. This is what he is pleading. You have rejected God's Messiah. Now agree with God that he was in fact the Messiah. That is what repentance looks like. And this healing happens in the heart by faith and repentance in his name. Stop thinking about God the way you think he should be. And start listening to God the way he has revealed himself to be. And then Peter, after he gives this imperative to repent, he provides three purpose clauses right there in the text. And these purpose clauses all start with the word that. And, and they really should be considered just three promises for anybody who repents and toward, turns to Christ. Uh, look at the first one there in verse 19. Repent, therefore, that your sins may be blotted out. Blotted out is the same word used in Revelation 21 that Jesus is going to wipe away your, your tears one day. He's going to blot your tears out, the same word. You remember the word Paul uses in Colossians 2 that, that Jesus cancels the record of debt that stood against you at the cross? It's blotted out. It's canceled. So beloved, please listen to me. Please pay attention. Everything that you have ever done, every thought that you have ever had that is wicked, every motive of malice, everything that no one has ever seen that you've done, but you know in your heart that you have believed, every sinful activity that has hurt someone, everything that you have recognized is not a part of the will of God according to his word. Every sinful thing that fills your mind and your heart, if you repent and turn to Jesus Christ as Lord, in his name, your sins are blotted out and they cannot be unblotted there is no there is no possible way that god forgets the covenant that has been made in his son's blood repent and your sins are blotted out so your killing of my son is no longer in my memory says god what an amazing thought a profound thought. But beloved, it's not just meant for these guys. It's not just meant for those who were at Antonio's fortress that day, listening to Pilate give down the order for crucifixion. Just because we're not there saying, crucify him, crucify him, doesn't mean that it's not our sin that kept him there, as we often sing in this church hall. I want us to remember what it says in Isaiah 53, that all we like sheep have gone astray and we have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It's been put on Christ. All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, as Paul writes. But if you repent, your sins are blotted out. 
You need to remember that on Wednesday morning when you wake up and you're struggling to believe that your sins are blotted out. It's like Peter's saying, you want to marvel at something today? Don't marvel at the guy who's leaping up. Marvel at the fact that though you killed the son, grace is offered to you in his name. Marvel at that. That is a profound work of the, of the living God showing and displaying his love. And I want us to know in the text, do you, do you see how, uh, how Luke writes that they were ignorant or Peter says that they were ignorant? They didn't know what they were doing. That doesn't mean they weren't guilty. That's why he's still calling them to repent. Do you remember when Jesus was having the nails driven through his hands? He was saying, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. Well, that prayer was answered because Peter has been sent to them and he's preaching the gospel to them. And he's through the power of the spirit, he's opening up their eyes to see, oh, we have killed the one that was promised. We have done something that is overwhelming. But ignorance does not grant forgiveness. Repentance in Jesus' name grants forgiveness. So we can't plead for ignorance on that day. We must repent. Can you believe the amount of irony that is found in this passage? First and foremost, Peter is preaching to the people who he denied Christ to. Now he's giving them Christ. They're in the temple, the place of atonement, and yet their sins are not forgiven. It's because they're not in the temple, the true temple, who is Jesus, as he identifies himself in John chapter 2. And as we'll see next week, he is the cornerstone of a living temple. They're marveling at the healing of the lame man, but they're unaware that they've killed the one who healed him. They've passed by the lame man thinking he's cursed by God, but now Peter is telling them, actually, you're cursed. The very one you killed is the very one who can blot out your sin of killing. And you killed the author of life. Well, the second clause that he helps them to see is, it's not just that your sins are blotted out, but look with me in verse 20, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Oh, beloved, it's not that your sins are forgiven and that's it. But we have been redeemed and restored into fellowship in the presence of God. There is a refreshing that takes place when you realize that the judgment of God is no longer on you. Exodus chapter 8 tells us this is how Israel felt after they had been delivered. Though we are not in his presence like we will one day be, we have the spirit that has been given to us as a guarantee, teaching us who God is, helping our hearts move us to understand who Jesus is in the totality of his name. It's like a hot Texas summer day forthcoming very soon where you grab a Coke with no ice and it's chilled and you drink it and it's refreshing, pales in comparison to the fresh presence of the living God given to us now in Christ. Jesus has made a way where there seemed to be no way. Jesus is the door, he says in John chapter 10, back into fellowship with God. 
And when you, when you turn away from walking away from God and walking to God, you walk through that door by believing in his name and you now have fellowship with the living God and you're in his presence. And we have this while we live in the earth and it, one day it will be even greater when the son of man comes back. But we see in Psalm chapter 19 that that God, the law of God, just refreshes the soul of man. That's why we say, be near God, engage with the living God. Read his word, enjoy it, not out of duty, but out of delight for who he is in the most intimate, intimate parts of his character. Let it fill you and refresh you. Consider all who God is in his name. All the things that we encompass in the name of Christ are yours now, beloved. Walk in presence with him. Consider the psalmist and what he says in Psalm 23, that the Lord is my shepherd. And he says, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes you rest. You don't have to work anymore. The shepherd has done the work. Enjoy the green pastures. He leads beside still waters. He provides living water to you to quench the dry soul that you have. He leads us to paths of righteousness. Why? For his own name's sake. Though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we have no evil to fear any longer because he is with us. And his staff and his rod, they comfort us. This is what it looks like to be in the presence of God. Peter already said, you, you remember when you were in the presence of Pilate, you know what it's like to be close to Pilate who wanted to release Jesus, well, now you can have refreshing presence in the living God. It's an, it's an amazing, it's an amazing thought. The third clause, that he may send the Christ appointed to you, or excuse me, appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring in all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. So those who repent, those who turn to Christ, the Christ was appointed first, we'll see here, to Israel, appointed for you. He's talking to Israel, but we'll see throughout the book of Acts, he's appointed now to the Gentiles, to all of us. And he right now is at the right hand of God, but he is actually going to come back physically to the earth, like it says here in this passage. So he's actually appointed to his people to come back. Why? Well, look what it says in 21. Because he's going to restore all things. He's going to make all things new. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had died or passed away, and the sea was no more. All the things that we marvel at, the amazing Orion's belt that I was referencing earlier in the Milky Way, the sequoia trees, every blade of grass, he's going to come and he's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. And if you repent of your sin and you turn to him, your sins are blotted out. You have fellowship with the living God. And you get to await the day when Christ comes back and you dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. Those are the promises that are promises that are made available to the people of God through Christ. It is the pleasure of the Father to give everything to his Son. 
and he waits in heaven until that day. He references the prophets of old. Of old. Do you remember what Isaiah 35, 6 says? The lame will leap like a deer. And here's the reality. They're not going to stop leaping. They won't go back into the dust. They will be healed forever. The picture of the man who is healed is a picture of what all of the new creation will look like when we're with Christ. It's just a glimpse. It's just a shadow of something that you and I, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, or heart could imagine what Christ is going to do or what Christ is going to do when he comes back. He's going to make it all new for us, beloved. It's a picture of the life to come. So you might be sitting there going, my heart hurts today. I'm suffering in ways, pastor, you cannot imagine. I can't do the things that I used to be able to do or nobody wants to do anything with me in this life right now. I feel like an outcast just like this lame man. Well, beloved, there's hope offered in Jesus' name today. And we get to see it in a temporary glorious form now and a full greater form when Christ returns. And the final thing, as to why this message is more glorious than the miracle is found in verses 22 through 26 where Peter just kind of slams the door on the argument because his message reinforces that Jesus is the only one they've been waiting for. He tells them at the very end of the argument, you've actually been waiting for this one. You just missed him. Verse 22, remember what Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. Well, they didn't do that. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaim these days. He's referring to 2 Samuel chapter 7, when a new king was going to be coming. And Peter's saying, this is the one. This is the one. And then look what he says about the promise that's for them in verse 25. He says of these men, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers. And, uh, and then he says um, of Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Referencing Genesis 22. He knows that this is Israel, the people that were given the prophets and the covenants and all the hope of a Messiah to come. He goes, this is for you. Take it. Take it. In verse 26, God, having raised up his servant, sent to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. And then look at the response that plays out in chapter 4, the first four verses. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees, came upon them, and they were greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now, they're annoyed because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection. And what did they do? And they arrested them, and they put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. We'll get into this next week, but I want us to see the response from the people in verse 4. But many of those who heard the word believed. They were cut to the heart, just like it's talked about in Acts chapter 2. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. 3,000 are saved in Acts chapter three, uh, 2. A two more are saved, 2,000 more are saved in Acts chapter 3. 5,000 people have now come to Christ 
on the top of the temple. Because the word of God has gone forward. Now, two quick takeaways for us in closing. First, I want us to see this, that Jesus is provided to bless you. First to Israel, and then, as we're going to see in Acts, to the nations. Do you see that in verse 26? To bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Beloved, I want us to consider for just a few moments that it's the pleasure of God and the pleasure that he has for his son to save the wicked, to be merciful to the wicked, to every single one of us. Ezekiel 18 says, I, um, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, and not rather that he should turn away from his sin and live. He says in Ezekiel 18, 32, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, so turn and live. It is the pleasure of the Father to allow his son to be brought forward, even taking on the penalty of our sin on the cross and raising him from the dead so that wicked people who put him to death and our sin that kept him here, that might be saved. It is the pleasure of the Father. God does not take pleasure in destroying the sinners. He's going to do it because he is just and righteous. And those who do not turn to God and repent, the wrath of God remains on them. Hear me. The wrath of God remains on them. And, and in fact, there's going to be a day, as we, as we see actually in, in Revelation chapter 18, that God is going to judge sin once and for all. The sin that wasn't judged at the cross that day. And we're going to get a full view of the depravity and the grotesqueness of every single one of our sins. And we're going to see the heights of the glory of Christ when he comes in judgment. And as it says in Revelation 18, the saints who have been forgiven are actually going to praise God for judging sin. So it's just and right that he would, but that doesn't mean he wants to. He's a merciful God who wants all men to be saved. We see the mercy of God and the justice of God. He is fully living out the attributes that he is. And so conversion is necessary, beloved. Repent. Change your mind about who God is and turn to God and the truth of the revelation of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Your sins will be blotted out. You are brought into the presence of God, and you get to await a creation in which you will dwell with him forever. If you are not a Christian amongst us today, please, please consider what I am saying. Please don't go back to your normal, mundane life without considering today the author of life, without considering today his love, that he is willing to forgive even those who have killed him. In every way that we have transgressed his holy law, that forgiveness is offered in his name. And if you, if you could, in your, in your seat, deal with that there today. Don't leave here without talking to me 
or to Pastor Corey or to Pastor Kurt, Pastor John, come and talk to us. We'd love to explain the glorious gospel and how you can be forgiven today by trusting in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. For those who are Christians, remember the mercy that you have been given in the name of Christ and the totality of who he is. Glory, mercy, forgiveness, all his incommunicable attributes are made known to us now who dwell with him in his presence. And the second thing in closing up, beloved, consider the value of Christ as the glorified one. Remember in verse 13, it said God glorified him. That means that he is exalted. And I'm not just talking like a little bit exalted above you. I'm talking about Jesus is exalted and his exalting is greater in some total value than every single person who has ever been created. He is the glorious one of the Father. He's not just your get out of jail free card. The weight of his glory is indescribable. It's uncomparable. Because you might be sitting there and you might be like, what does it matter that I have sinned? And how does this man's death a few thousand years ago do anything about that? Well, when the man who died is greater than the sum total of all things, it is the answer to the very problem that you have, and that is your sin. Because his blood that is spilt is glorious blood. So glorious that the Father decided to raise him and give him all things. And the good news about the gospel and the glorious part about the gospel is that not only does the Father pleasure in the Son, but the Son pleasures in the Father. And in, it says in 1 Corinthians 15 that one day Jesus is going to give everything back to the Father. And it's all going to be done. And heaven and earth are going to be brought together. And Jesus, the fully God, fully man, is going to reign on his throne forever. In your heart, are you ready for that day? That day is coming. Don't leave here without considering this truth today. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have given us your word that's living and breathing. God, that you, Father, just as you saved people 2,000 years ago with the preached word, we can preach the same word today. God, and your spirit can do work, and we pray that your spirit would do work. We pray that people would be grieved over their sin, but that they would not be overwhelmed because, Father, you have made a way to live, and that is through Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.